Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi all. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. I also want to thank those of you who donate to the Patreon account. There will be more rewards coming down the pipe, such as giveaways. From now on, every week, a winner will be drawn from the Patreon pool and will receive a psychic reading from me online. I am a card reader and astrologer, and I will do a reading for you online should your name be chosen. Once again, the Patreon link is www.patreon.com slash leader1 www.patreon.com slash l-e-a-d-e-r-o-n-e Thank you and enjoy the show. September 24th, 1939, in East Los Angeles, California. He has compared the hardships of his youth to those of the titular character in the Stephen King novel, Carrie, with differences in narrative, but not in severity. Kearney was the firstborn of three sons, but he did not enjoy any kind of genetic advantages over his brothers. He was slight of build, effete, and cowardly. It didn't help that he wore glasses with Coke bottle lenses. He was bullied for these characteristics. His classmates would deride him with insults like girly boy, queer boy, and little faggot. Kearney never forgot the torment his peers inflicted on him, and the resentment turned to rage over the years. Indeed, he began to construct narratives of homicide in his imagination and they expanded in intricacy and brutality throughout the years. His appetite for flesh and blood gnawed away at an empty stomach populated only with a tapeworm who was eager to devour every morsel to ensure Kearney would never achieve satiation. Torture and murder would endow him with the power that had been denied him by his tormentors for so long. With the advent of his sexual awakening, Coital fantasies became intertwined with homicidal ideation in his imagination. Powered by self-loathing, he would find substitutes for his peers among the men he targeted for violence. He had scores to settle, and the world would pay, one victim at a time. 
He couldn't go back in time and punish his old high school peers, so he would choose vulnerable young gay men. First, he would need the tool to do the job right. When Patrick was 13 years old, his father bought a 22 caliber rifle for hunting. Young Patrick wanted to embark on hunting expeditions in his own right. It's just that he had his sights on a different mammalian species. His father was his hunting mentor. He would give him tips, such as shooting a pig above and behind the left ear. He informed him that wounding the animal in this spot would result in the least amount of blood being spilled. The bullet was also more likely to enter the brain from that angle. Patrick hunted animals using his father's advice. With every shot, he envisioned himself killing a human. This may have activated his sexual drive, for he said it happened around the time he started killing animals. He had sex for the first time during this period, though it was with his dog. He was paranoid that the students at his new school, where he was attending junior high, would somehow intuit that he had sex with his dog. He was relieved when his father resigned from his position with the Los Angeles Police Department and became employed as a salesman with a travel agency, which necessitated a move to Arizona. Patrick encountered bullying at his new school, but he got better at tuning out the condemnation he received from his peers. He applied himself to his studies with more dedication. He became passionate about languages and learned to speak Spanish, Japanese, and Chinese with relative fluency. After graduating, he studied engineering at El Camino Community College in Torrance, California. He joined the Air Force in 1958 after graduating. He hoped to travel over the world using his proficiency in linguistics and other skills he acquired through his education to good use. Instead, he was stationed in Texas. 1960. Some good luck graced Patrick's life after being honorably discharged from the Air Force. He met a man named David Hill, who was a high school dropout from Lubbock, Texas. He was discharged from the Army for personality disorder of classified nomenclature. It was presumed to be homosexuality, which the Army considered to be a mental illness at the time, and it rendered a recruit inadmissible for employment in the armed forces. Patrick and David were strongly attracted to each other. They pursued an on-again, off-again affair that lasted for 15 years. Hill was also married to a woman for a period during those years. 1961. Kearney did not like Texas, with the sweltering heat being one of his primary complaints. Hill decided to choose Kearney over his wife, and he followed when Patrick moved back to California. Patrick Kearney was looking forward to the future. After a year of being settled in California, Hill became restless. He broke up with Kearney and hitchhiked around the United States, eventually returning to his wife in Lubbock. Patrick Kearney was devastated by the loss of David Hill. He tried distracting himself with the history classes he took at California State University at Long Beach. 
This wasn't effective in its intended purpose. The rejection drove Kearney to distraction, and rage began to boil within him. The way he sought an injustice was done to him, and he alone was the one contending with the consequences. He was a powerless victim again, and he hated being in that position. He was sick of suffering the repercussions. His soul was crying out for retribution, and the cacophony would reverberate beyond the realm of his solipsistic prison, where he was the only inmate serving a sentence for an offense, despite his innocence. He would find a way out, and the streets were not nearly as safe with him lurking. First Murder one day, Patrick Kearney offered a ride on his motorcycle to a 19-year-old man. After arriving at a secluded area, Patrick shot the man in the back of his head behind his left ear, exactly as his father taught him. He wasn't quite done with the man's body yet. First, he made sure to sodomize and mutilate the corpse. Satisfied, he dumped it close to California State Route 86. Second murder. The first victim's 16-year-old cousin caught sight of Patrick Kearney before they drove off together. With this boy as possible witness, Kearney rode back to the spot where he picked up the 19-year-old. He persuaded the boy to go for a ride. That is the last time the younger boy was seen alive. Third murder. Kearney killed a young man named Mike. Soon after, David Hill returned to Patrick, and it brought Kearney's first killing spree to an end. 1963. Patrick Kearney was in better spirits. Not only had David returned to his life, but he was hired by Hughes Aircraft, a prestigious position with a hefty paycheck. In celebration of Kearney's improved prospects, he and David moved to Culver City. 1966. David Hill and his wife Linda got a divorce. Patrick and David enjoyed domestic harmony for almost two years. 1967. Patrick and David went on vacation to Tijuana, Mexico. During their stay, they ran into one of David's old friends, a man named George. He invited them to stay at his home for the rest of their trip. George came to regret this decision, as Patrick did not make for pleasant company. In fact, Patrick shot George in his sleep. Assured that George was dead, Kearney dragged his body into the bathroom. He put his corpse into the tub. He had sex with the corpse. Having climaxed, he dismembered it. He removed the skin from George's body with an exacto knife. He removed the bullet from the head to further decrease the chances of being charged. He buried what was left of George's body in the backyard. George's remains would not be found for a decade. When Patrick and David returned to California, Patrick was paranoid and stressed in the aftermath of what he did to George in Mexico. He decided to keep a low profile. He bought a house in Redondo Beach. The couple were not as happy together this time around. They were constantly fighting. Every time they had a row, 
Patrick would drive back to Tijuana. Speculation has it that Kearney blew off steam by killing men in Mexico, but that has not been proven. Patrick was compelled to go on yet another kill-crazy rampage when David left him in the middle of the night one day, a note as the only trace of him left in the house. His crimes would go undetected for another ten years, due to the fact that they were camouflaged by a bloodbath to which multiple serial killers were contributing. It was blotting the sunshine state in patches of crimson red. The police were overwhelmed. 1974. Murder had become Patrick Kearney's addiction. He was a junkie for blood. If he didn't kill at least one man a month, some sort of withdrawal kicked in, most likely unresolved rage. The Paradigm Kearney picked up hitchhikers and gay men he picked up in bars and bathhouses. He preferred men who were larger in size than he was. He was thrilled by the control he had over these men, the kind of control their archetype in his high school denied him for so many years. Kearney's car was a trap, and he didn't waste time once his victim was ensnared. He shot them while they were sleeping or distracted. He shot them with his Derringer 22 pistol. Typical of his method of execution, he shot them behind the ear. He left them slumped backward or forward as he drove away, their heads bobbing up and down whenever he drove over potholes and other uneven terrain. He would drive them to a secluded area, whereupon he would rape their corpses. Now that he was living alone, he would bring them home and drain their bodies of blood. He would dismember them and place the parts in industrial-strength plastic garbage bags. He would toss the bags in the deserts, located close to less frequented freeways, in the canyons behind Los Angeles, or underneath piles of trash at landfills. August 24, 1974. Ronald Dean Smith, five years old, was late for the evening meal at home. He was playing in a park with a friend. The friend made it home for dinner. Ronnie was expected at his grandmother's house, where he was staying while his mother was away. Hours later, Ronnie's grandmother, Shirley O'Connor, grew agitated. She called the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Lennox substation and reported him missing. What police found out was that while the two boys were playing in the sandbox, a dispute arose, and they engaged in what the other boy described as a sand fight. He went home to clean up while Ronnie remained back at the sandbox, crying. Police searched the park. They spoke to neighbors. No clues. Ronnie had vanished without a trace. A week after Ronnie disappeared, his mother, Joanne O'Connor, made an emotional plea at a press conference that was facilitated by the police. An excerpt from her statement the reason we wanted you all to come here is to tell whoever had Ronnie how much we want him back. We definitely do feel in our hearts that he's alive and okay and, then, and that he's safe. I just want to tell whoever he's with now that he's very important to me, that he's, he's all I've got, and that I love him so very much. 
I know that whoever took Ronnie took him because they wanted a little boy to love. And I know you took him because he's so beautiful and that you won't hurt him. October 13, 1974. It was almost two months after Ronnie disappeared. A coterie of children was collecting cans by the shoulder of Riverside County's Ortega Highway. At one point, they got more than they bargained for. They found the body of a small boy. It was at an advanced stage of decomposition. After police examined the cadaver, they confirmed that it was the body of Ronnie Smith. Ronnie was raped and tortured for two straight days before he was dispatched to the grave. June 26, 1975. 13-year-old John Demchik disappeared after running off to San Francisco. When Kearney found him, he was standing on a corner. He offered to give him a ride home. Patrick Kearney had other plans. As soon as John got into his truck, he shot him in the head. The next step was to drive 15 miles southeast of Calexico, passing along the California-Mexico border. Having found a spot that was sufficiently secluded, he brought John's body out of the truck, undressed him, raped him, and left him for dead in the dirt, bloody, naked, and smarting from the pain. John's father, Stephen, told his remaining family that he took a job in San Francisco and had decided to move there for a while. The truth was, he went there to search for his son. To quote Stephen, I used to spend my weekends just driving around the city and on the highways just to see if I could spot him. I dreamed of him up there. The last dream I had, he was in a dungeon. He was calling me. Come and get me. I asked him, where are you? He never answered me. I went through a lot of hell. John's body remained undiscovered for another six years. His remains were identified by his mother, who recognized a scrap from the clothing he wore at the time. As his sister noted, his mother, Norma, was devastated. To quote his sister, I think she just didn't want to go on. Indeed, Norma passed away a short time after identifying John's remains. A few decades after the loss of his wife and son, Stephen Demchik lived alone, his other kids now adults. He commented on the situation. He's not coming back. There's nothing that can bring him back. I knew that after the police called and his mother identified his clothes. I said, that's him. There's no use grieving over it anymore. The pain still recurs from time to time, as he pointed out. There are times when I remember him on his birthday or at Christmas. That's hard. But I have to reach back and say, he's not coming back. Another parent who lost her child to Patrick Kearney's killing spree was Elizabeth McGee. He murdered her son, Michael. Michael was the type of youth that one could reasonably dub at risk. He dropped out of school at age 12. He became a career criminal with offenses that included burglary and auto theft. He was also fond of hitchhiking. He couldn't have possibly been more vulnerable 
And when he got picked up by Patrick Kearney in June 1976, he wasn't long for this earth. Kearney invited him on a camping trip. Michael told him he was unavailable, but that he would consider it if asked another time. A week later, Kearney paid a visit to Michael's family's home. His sister told Kearney that Michael was grounded and therefore disallowed to go camping with Patrick. Meanwhile, Michael snuck out the back door. While Patrick walked back to the car, Michael caught up with him. Michael's brother Robert tried to prevent Michael from going with Kearney, but Michael was headstrong, and so off he went with Patrick. That was the last time his family saw him. April 6th. 1977. A boy named Hondo disappeared while he rode his bicycle in Patrick Kearney's neighborhood. Kearney took him to his house. He smothered him until Hondo asphyxiated and died. Kearney sodomized Hondo's corpse. Once he was done with him, he dumped his remains in Angela's National Forest. Patrick Kearney found some new spots for hunting young gay men. Selma Avenue in Hollywood and MacArthur Park in Los Angeles were rife with those individuals he considered to have victim potential. Law enforcement realized there was likely a serial killer at work on April 13, 1975. The mutilated corpse of 21-year-old Albert Rivera was found near San Juan Capistrano. There was something about the way the body parts were bagged. It was very neatly sealed. Whoever killed this man took great care with packaging these remains, as if they were prepared for market. To quote Detective Al Set from the report he submitted to a district attorney, the body was wrapped in a fetal position using heavy-duty nylon fiber tape. The body was then placed in two heavy-duty commercial plastic trash can liners. He was then placed in a common household green plastic trash bag, which was also wrapped with tape. Set compared notes with Orange County and other neighboring police agencies. A corpse in a garbage bag was found in Orange County, as well as in Riverside. By the time summer rolled around, eight more cadavers were found wrapped in trash bags in Los Angeles, Imperial, Riverside, San Diego, and Orange County. The paradigm gave investigators a leg up now that they were able to construct at least a segment of a modus operandi. What they knew so far. All the victims were gay. They were all naked. They were all shot in the head with a gun. The gun and ammunition were a similar make and model. Many of the victims were mutilated and dismembered and stuffed into plastic garbage bags of identical brand and color. Homophobia cast a shadow over their efforts to find the killer. Publicly, they referred to the murderer as the trash bag killer. Behind closed doors, they dubbed the case informally, fags in bags. They weren't exactly moving heaven and earth to find the perpetrator. For two years, the trash bag killer was inactive or at least that appeared to be the case. January 24, 1977. A state employee working under the San Diego Freeway's Lenox Tunnel tripped over a tightly sheathed trash bag. 
Something exceedingly heavy was inside. Typical refuse doesn't normally weigh that much. The contents consisted of what remained of 28-year-old Nicholas Hernandez Jimenez. He was a hustler from Los Angeles. The trash bag killer case was unfinished business, and the police could not rest on their laurels anymore. 17-year-old John LeMay left his family's home for the last time on March 13, 1977. To quote his mother, Patricia LeMay, He'd spent the night at a friend's house without telling me. This was not something he was inclined to do on a school night, so she was concerned when he failed to return that evening. Patricia called one of John's friends, a neighbor of theirs. He told her the last time he saw John was around 5.30 p.m. John was on his way to Redondo Beach to meet with a man he identified as Dave. He met him at a gym. When John turned up at Dave's house a little after 6 p.m., Dave Hill was not present. But Patrick Kearney was home. He invited John in to await Dave's arrival. They watched television together for a while. This was disrupted when Kearney shot John in the back of his head with his 22 Derringer. Patrick hid John's corpse in a closet to prevent David from discovering it. Once it was assured that David would never find it, Patrick dismembered the body, washed it, wrapped it in a garbage bag, and drove it to the desert south of Corona, where he dumped it. March 18th, police found John LeMay's remains. Not only was the body dismembered, but the blood was drained out and the individual components of his body were washed and packaged neatly into five separate garbage bags, sealed with nylon tape. The only thing missing were instructions on how to reassemble it all, head not included. Three of the bags were stuffed into an oil drum, while the other two were left on the ground because they didn't fit into the drum. Al Set and another detective, Roger Wilson, questioned John's friends. They told them John spent a lot of time hanging out with two guys named Pat and Dave, who lived together in Redondo Beach. After asking a few more questions, they forged a path that led to the doorstep of Patrick Kearney and David Hill. When they approached the men, they were both cooperative. They conveyed that they were shocked to hear about John LeMay's death. They allowed the officers to search their house without a warrant though they were uneasy the entire time. The officers took a sample of the couple's carpet fibers. When they submitted it to the lab, it proved to be a match for fibers found on the tape that was used to seal the garbage bags. Wilson and Set returned to the Kearney Hill homestead. This time they took samples of pubic hair from both men, as well as hair from their pet poodle. Once again, they were compliant, but concerned. The detectives needed to gather more evidence, so they applied for a warrant. Once it was granted, they notified David and Patrick that they had one and would return to search their household more thoroughly. In preparation for this, Patrick threw out all his press clippings about his hero, serial killer Dean Coral. Kearney resigned from his position at Hughes Aircraft and they escaped to David's family's home in El Paso, Texas. Warrant in hand, 
Wilson and Set arrived at the house after the two men fled. They found what they were looking for, though they were unprepared for just how incriminating it all was. Among the most crucial articles of evidence were a hacksaw coated in dried bits of flesh and blood, determined through the process of forensic DNA analysis to have been extracted from the body of John LeMay. With the assistance of Luminol, they found residual blood all over the bathroom. A roll of nylon filament tape, like the kind used to wrap up the remains of John LeMay. They also searched Kearney's office at Hughes Aircraft. There they found his cache of industrial garbage bags. David Hill's family pressured the men to turn themselves in. After continually leaning on them to do this, they were persuaded and drove back to California. They arrived at Riverside County Sheriff's Station on July 1st, 1977. After entering, they noticed a wanted poster relevant to the trash bag murders. David Hill drew the attention of an officer at the front counter. He pointed to the wanted poster and said, We're them. To quote Riverside County Sheriff Ben Clark, These were not two individuals who wanted to remain on the run. Having been placed in custody, Kearney decided to make a full confession. According to Set, the interrogators did not need to prod him to do it. He wanted to talk. For some reason or another, he wanted to talk. I was known as a pretty good interrogator, but Kearney really wanted to talk. He wanted to get this stuff off his chest. Kearney made a point of noting that David was not aware of the murders and therefore not an accomplice. He planned to plead guilty. Throughout the confession, he admitted to committing 28 murders. He noted that the victims ranged in age from 5 to 28. He disclosed that he committed seven additional homicides. The confession wasn't enough to close the case. To quote Ben Clark, investigators surmised at this time that there were 15 workable cases. There are at least 13 additional cases that have been discussed by the suspects that may be involved also. There are at least 28. There may be more, there may be less. When it came to some of the murders, Kearney was vague about details. When he wasn't obfuscating, he would forget names and the way he disposed of the remains. On others, he remembered everything and described his methodology in detail. His favorite spot to dump corpses was the desert. To quote Kearney, things disappeared very rapidly in the desert. You can put a small animal on an anthill, and it disappears right in front of your eyes. He said that the camping trip he promised to Michael McGee would have come to pass until some of Michael's behavior troubled Patrick. Namely, he was a little preoccupied with Kearney's belongings. Patrick was aware of Michael's past as a thief, so this made him nervous. To quote Patrick Kearney, We were going to spend the weekend just outing, and... He kept talking about how he stole this guy's truck. And then when I got him in the house, he kept asking me. He said, Oh, you have all these things around. You know, I had had all my radios and stuff. And he kept talking about, you know, You don't have any burglar alarms, do you? If you do, where are they? 
You know, he kept asking very pertinent questions. I thought, yeah, I made a mistake in befriending this kid, letting him know where I live. And I shot him before we ever went anywhere. Didn't go anywhere for the weekend. After this, Patrick couldn't help himself. And after making a mess of Michael McGee, he cleaned him up. All he had to say about the possibility of salvaging Michael McGee's remains was, I disposed of the body. You aren't going to find him. Michael McGee still lives with the remorse of not trying harder to prevent Michael from getting in Kearney's car. To quote Robert, I just refuse to believe it. There was no body. There was no physical evidence. I would rather think Michael's off in Mexico, goofing off, maybe on a beach somewhere. The police took Kearney to spots where he told them he dumped victims who had never been found. They recovered 12 bodies. The last one was unearthed from the backyard of Kearney and Hill's Culver City House. July 14, 1977. Patrick Kearney was indicted on two counts of murder, including the killing and mutilating of John LeMay. By then, Kearney signed confessions to 28 murders. The police confirmed 12. Kearney told police he killed because it excited him and gave him a feeling of dominance. There was not enough evidence to link David Hill to the crimes, and the charges he incurred were dismissed. He was advised by his attorney to never talk about the case. December 21st, Patrick Kearney pled guilty to three counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of John LeMay, Albert Rivera, and Arturo Marquez. He was sentenced to life in prison. There was a possibility of parole in the distant future, and to ensure that wouldn't happen, police continued to examine the evidence that was gathered against him. To quote Sergeant Ted Taguchi, a number of filings with the district attorney is anticipated. Any information regarding specific crimes is premature and unfair to the parties involved. Kearney was cooperative as always, writing several letters to the police. He confessed 18 more murders for which he was eventually prosecuted. He confessed to an additional 11 but police could not gather sufficient evidence to prove his culpability. The tally of both proven and unproven murders brought Patrick Kearney's body count to 32. He is routinely considered to be one of the most prolific serial killers in the annals of American malfeasance. February 1978. Patrick Kearney was charged with 18 more murders, including the first 12 that he confessed to. He pled guilty and requested that he receive his sentence as soon as possible. Judge Dickeran Trevrizian recommended the death penalty. He accepted Kearney's plea and sent him to a higher court for sentencing. Superior Court Judge Paul Breckenridge Jr. could not give Patrick Kearney the death penalty because the state had not yet reinstated the death penalty law, which happened later that year. Instead, Kearney was given concurrent life sentences for the 21 murders. Patrick Kearney's attorney, Jay Grossman, attempted to dissuade Kearney from pleading guilty in hopes that they could successfully submit an insanity plea after psychiatric testing. Kearney was adamant that he stay his course. To quote Grossman, 
I believe he has certain psychiatric defenses, which he was refusing to let me raise. He didn't want to bring out certain facts in a jury trial. He was ashamed, I guess. Kearney wanted to get it all over with. Judge Breckenridge noted. He wanted to be done quickly. So quickly that I don't think we even had the probation reports, usually reviewed by the court, when I sentenced him. When Patrick Kearney was asked once again why he chose to take this approach, he only said, I prefer not to answer. I can't allow myself to think about it too much. It's too painful. Breckenridge gave him 18 more life sentences to be served concurrently. He made this pronouncement about Kearney's offenses. It certainly appears the defendant is certainly deserving of whatever punishment the court can prescribe, and I would only hope that the Community Release Board will never see fit to parole Mr. Kearney because he appears to be an insult to humanity. He has certainly perpetrated a series of ghastly, grisly, and horrible crimes. Patrick Kearney is still serving a sentence. Victim Impact Statements One of Patrick Kearney's victims was a man named Robert Benefiel. His sister has been lobbying to keep Kearney behind bars and eliminate any possibility that he be paroled. She recalled what she was told by police when Kearney identified her brother as one of his victims. Police took a picture to Kearney in 1981 and asked, is this one of your victims? Kearney identified him. To this day, it eats my other brother up that the picture he took out of his wallet was the one that Slime looked at. Kearney dumped her brother's remains in a landfill. His body was never found. This actually gives Benefield's sister some comfort, as she noted. I don't know if it's doubt or hope. We don't have a body. Kearney didn't know my brother's name. There's always that little bit in your mind. For so many years, you see someone who looks like him. You take a double take. Even to this day, we moved on. But it's always in your head. It doesn't go away. There's always going to be anger and bitterness. I mean, my God, he killed my brother. Michael McGee's sister is also involved in the battle to ensure that Patrick Kearney remain in prison for the rest of his natural life. Her statement, I want to let them know the slime he is. I want to tell them how he affected people's lives. He needs to account for what he's done. He took my naivete away. Before this happened, I used to go down to the beach at night and walk along the ocean. But he took that away. I realized I couldn't do that anymore. There were a lot of things I wouldn't do anymore. It wasn't safe. I realized how sick the world is. Patrick Kearney continues to apply for parole when he is eligible. Stephen Demchik's son John's absence is as keenly felt as ever. Stephen could only sum up his feelings about Patrick Kearney by saying, That son of a bitch. That son of a bitch. 1981. Patrick Kearney wrote a letter to the Riverside Press Enterprise in which he recanted his confession. In one passage, he wrote, I have another tidbit of news for you. I didn't kill anybody. That's all I'll say at the moment. 
He asked to be released from prison. It was the second time he petitioned for a release. The first time he petitioned to the Riverside Superior Court. It said that not only did he not commit the murders, but he was unfairly advised by his attorney. To quote Kearney, The person in custody pleaded guilty to felonies which he did not commit. The pleas were given due to threats and other forms of duress. It is highly unlikely that he will ever be released. Deputy District Attorney Diane Vazani pronounced Kearney's chances of being released as, quote, between slim and none because of the horrible nature of the offenses themselves. She was especially incensed that he didn't attend the parole hearings so that he could face the families of the victims. To quote Fizzani, I'd like to tell him, Big man, what a big man you are. Had to use a gun to have your way with little boys. What a big, brave man. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.